The Brooklyn NAACP Equity in the Arts and Culture Committee proudly present Conversations. And now here's your host, Rajendra Ramoon Maharaj. Hi, everybody. This is Rajendra Ramoon Maharaj, the third vice president of the Brooklyn branch of the NAACP. And I am so thrilled today, so thrilled today to introduce all of you to one of my favorite artists and one of the funniest, talented women, the pride of Philadelphia, Tamara Anderson. Let's give her a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's so good to be here with you. I love it. I love it. I adore you. You know that. And I, I wanted to start with, obviously, the world is in such a strange place. How are you doing? How is Philly doing? Well, you know, so I think like everywhere. So everywhere has its own flavor of how they are dealing with this pandemic, right? And not just the pandemic, but also this kind of like the uprisings, the, the time for accountability, you know, student protests and voices coming up to the top. And so we are no different, but I will say what has been happening that has been really joyful to watch is in the educational realm, it's been really nice to watch students be really empowered and to really speak their truth, to really like the whole black at central, black at masterman, black on the mainline Instagram that has come out of Philadelphia has really shined a light on the treatment of black students in private magnet school programs. And the fact that they have wonderful, they have found kind adults, as I like to say, who are giving them the space to speak their truth and to hold their town halls and to have their protests. I mean, and not only that, but even they're, they're out there getting the vote. Like I saw two of them yesterday, to me yesterday on Instagram, come out here and register to vote. So, I mean, the fact that these are 16, 17, 18-year-olds, some are 15-year-olds, it is powerful to watch because I, I am a true believer that we should listen to our youth, right? Like, we should not ignore them. Like, this, like those intergenerational conversations are really important. And then in the artistic side, there has been, um, so we just actually, uh, uh, just recently appointed uh, here in Theater of Philadelphia, Lanish uh, Miller-White, is it Lanish, yeah, Lanish, Nalisha, Lanisha Miller-White, I want to say. She is um, a black female, black female artist who used to be a theater ex, who is going to be the new director for theater in Philadelphia. Wow. No, it, I was like, what? So this is great because she has been definitely one of the people putting the work in where believes that art should always be a form of activism, right? Mm -hmm. And they have uh, her and a group of other, some other actors have just recently formed, I don't want to get the name wrong, it's either the Black Theater Alliance or the Black Theater Philadelphia Alliance. It's either one. And basically they have, we have like a Facebook page and um, it's now a private page, but it's a beautiful space for community building, people to talk about what's happening, people to talk about how things have made them uncomfortable, how some theaters have started to have these conversations around diversity and equity. Some have been successful, yeah. some have not, right? I mean, it's what comes with the terrain, right? But as always, my whole thing in it is, so what's next? 
<laughs> so yeah. like, well, how, how, what's the big picture here? So we have, we tear down these, these things and we tear down these pillars. What do we replace it with? Right. Yeah. And so something that I've been working on with a local production company, Juniper Productions is this creation of a virtual space dedicated to black female artists. And I literally, like, it's, I had the idea, after several meetings, like, like uh, also out of New York has started the Nash, National Black Theater Caucus. Yep. And so I've been on a few meetings with them, and I've had meetings here, and it's like meeting, 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 meeting. And one thing that I have noticed is that there's a lot of people in theater who are waiting for things to go back to normal. And my concern is that... That isn't going to happen. And what is normal? Because for me, it didn't feel normal to begin with. Let's tell the truth. Right. So <laughs> I was like, what's normal? Right. Parity, parity, equity, opportunity, access. Right. That one Black History Month show in February. You know, everyone- right. With the same yeah. Black History writer. You're yeah. like this. Oh, it's one out of like everyone. And and also, like, oh, you had a list of, like, Black creative people that's been around for two years? I never knew that. I would have hired from that. It's, you could have Googled it. It's, <laughs> it was public. It's a domain. And so one thing I, 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 so I started talking in my head about this virtual space. So, of course, you know, I do TV, I do film, and I've been getting a lot of commercial auditions since I've been home. Hence my wall, or hence my fake wall, <laughs> or hence, you know, this, or my daughter coming out saying, are you going to turn that in? You probably should do that again. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, take two, take two. <laughs> she's like this, like, take advantage of these takes. Come on, do it again. You want to book this job? And I was like, oh, okay. So when seeing all this, one thing that, so one thing I'm blessed is that I, I already have both my feet in the door because they literally are calling people they've already worked with. Let's be clear. But it also made me realize black women have been fighting for a space all the time. And so I wanted to provide a virtual space and provide workshops. Like how do you, how do you make your show pop on camera? Especially now that both unions have no idea what to do with us. And one of our unions is half of them are furloughed. It's like, this is a time to really build. And like, I signed up to be on a committee for one. Because usually I never had time because I was working all the time. But now I'm like, let me be in these conversations while you're making these decisions about my life and my pension. You know what I'm saying? Hello. Hello. And I was like, I said, so what if I take a cohort of five people put a team with them, a dramaturg, a director, a videographer, and really have them tell their story. And so the first cohort would be solo stories, right? I've gotten some theaters who are like, yeah, they can come film in our lobby. Yeah, they can come film on our stage. They can do some stuff on the street. So that, and then monetizing this venue so that 60% of ticket sales go to the artist. That's great. That's As opposed to what can I, you know, like, and, and, and also empowering them, giving them a national stage. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times what I have found is some of the conversations, not just here in Philly, Philly, Chicago, it has a lot to do with the fact that actors, actors of color always isolate themselves, like silo themselves in a space, right? 
Whereas if I don't get work in a city, I'm like, deuces. I'm yeah. going to go to another city and work, right? Because I believe in the power of travel and a free hotel. Like, I have no problem with that. Plus, I don't even think half of the this dreaming I've been doing would be possible if I didn't have a national network. Yeah. And I also think you we can learn from each other, right? Like what what do we do in our regions that we don't do in this region or that type of stuff? And how can I really tell my stories and really giving a place for like trans women of color and black women so they can really sit in a space and tell their stories and empower. So basically what's happening is this pandemic has really encouraged me to put on my producing hat. Yes, which we need. We need more women of color signing the checks, organizing behind the scenes in every medium, film, television, and most importantly, theater. Yes, and this venue, because it's national, because it's a virtual space, I can also invite writers who want to write for TV because I get calls from them too. Like, do you know a person of color who has such as that? I'm like, uh, yeah, they're in my back pocket. Let me pull them out for you. But now I can invite these producers and change makers into a space to see the work of black artists, specifically black female artists with that lens that don't always get seen in the public. I agree. I, I think what you're doing is so important. And, and for all the thousands of, of Black women who are listening right now who are artists, how do they find out about that space and about you? Where, where would they go to locate you and make contacts? The funders that are listening right now, the grantiers and the artists, where would they go? Yes. Yeah, so right now, the website, we don't want you to send you the website because you'll be sad. Then I look unprofessional because it literally says building site under construction, right? <laughs> so, but what I want you to do is give you my email, which is the best place to reach me and to have a conversation about, because we're looking for partnerships, sponsorships now. We're also seeking food and beverage sponsors because of my voiceover talents. I'm providing like a free ad for people to sponsor the work and we'll put your ads up in the show. So um, Tamara Della Anderson, so that's T-A-M-A-R-A-D-E-L-L-A. -L -L -A, and then you add another A because I'm grammatically correct, N-D-E-R-S-O-N at gmail.com. And that's the best way to like get in contact with me about this. And even like if you're interested, applications will be going live at the end of September for artists to join this cohort. So let me, you know, that's a great way to reach out. And I want to say as vice president that I'd like to personally challenge Whole Foods, Fresh Direct, and both CVS and Dwayne Reed in Philadelphia or nationally to write at least a $50,000 check yes, um, say to, it. This, to this organization. You have made a commitment to Black women and Black Lives Matter. I've seen it in the NAACP, and I can vouch for my sister and her organization, her leadership, her vision, as well as her professionalism. The money will go to the project, and it will make a difference in the space for Black women to have a safe space to be creative, and have their voices celebrated. So if you're really talking to talk the corporations, then this is an opportunity. I've had many people say, who can I give to you? Here is a, a black woman entrepreneur in Philadelphia who has the street credit, who has the vision and needs the funding. 
do the right thing. Yes, yes, yes. Because so often, you know, we have these dreams and we have no funds behind us, right? And even now, like at this time of mutual aid, you know, I one of my um, sister friends here started a groceries in Philly, which is amazing, where she does pop-up stores all over the city. And literally, this is like a grassroots sister who is collecting money through Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal. And at the end of every weekend, takes that $5,000 and goes to Aldi's and Target and gets fresh food, fresh produce, fresh meat, fresh this. And then people walk away with two bags of groceries. And usually they're in food deserts, which have intensified since the uprising. And just since, you know, people's resource, people's access to stuff. And I can't tell you how, like, these are the people I roll with, right? Like, Kaziah is one of the people who's in the group that I'm in. I'm doing this Black artist group for women. We also are like supporting youth in trauma and gun violence. So this is when you give to this program, you are literally giving to feet on the ground as opposed to like some, 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 you no know, dream. And I'm going to, you know, take this and do something. No, no, this is something that I plan on being a permanent space in virtual land, right? Yes, it's a movement that came out of the moment and it's going to continue. And I really want to encourage those folks who are listening. People listen to this show and they've given a lot of money to a lot of organizations. And the trickle-down effect has always been, how do we support black women, brown women, black trans women? I'm speaking right now as the vice president telling you that this is an organization and a woman who has vision and needs the capital, and your capital will go to changing lives in this space. I wanna ask you right now, you're the first guest we've had since the announcement of Joe Biden's VP, Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing people don't know about you that I know, I both respect you deeply as a mother and an artist, but I respect you even more as an activist and how you've been able to balance the three. So. As the queen woman that you are, what are your thoughts on Kamala being the vice presidential pick? And how do you see that finally giving black women in the Democratic Party the acknowledgement that they have been the backbone since the dawning of time? What are your thoughts? (laughs) Well, for one, I think it's about time we collect those receipts. Mm. And I will be, and my thing is this, so... When the announcement was made, of course, I was very excited, you know, and I was also very excited to see like people being excited about who was going to be on the ticket, right? But even more so, I challenged my fellow brothers and sisters to also challenge Biden and Harris because we need to be critical voters, right? Not to say, because when you say that, people are like, what do you mean? You're not going to vote? No, 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 no. I'm saying to vote and then to have a plan to support them locally to make sure that we get out for that local vote. Who are we going to put in the DA's office in all of our cities to support them at the top? Who are we going to put in our governorship? Because the governors have shown you who they are during COVID-19. And so you fully aware know who cares about your life and who does not. Mm. Mm. And this is the time to really teach civics again in your household 
to really talk about the fact that black women have saved the very lives of this country in their voting practices time and time again. And they would have saved the United States from this last debacle, but more people kept wanting to vote for somebody else because 80% of black women went out to yes. vote. Yes, yes. So when we talk about, oh, who's voting, who's this, it's black women. We talk about who is organizing on the ground for upright. It's black women. We talk about who is actually out here saying the schools are not safe. It is black women. When you are asking for like what mutual aid, people actually giving money to each other. Because this myth that people think that black people don't care about each other and don't take care of each other has to go bye-bye. We have constantly done that. There, I mean, even in our own history during Jim Crow, when we could not get loans, we were mostly getting money from black female entrepreneurs who were actually following the rule book of Booker T. Washington. So despite the, like, you know, we go back and forth with the boys in Washington, but if you really look at the full history that many of us are not taught, you will see that there was this sense of entrepreneurship, this sense of self-worth, right? Like we would not have the Madam C.J. Walkers of the world if it wasn't for these practices. And it was because of those practices that young black women got money to be able to do these different projects. And let's not talk about the $800 that Ella Baker took and basically created SNCC. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about that because one of the things that I always find so fascinating about you and it's really shaped me, and I don't know if I've ever really fully discuss this with you, but is how you really instilled in me and I think everyone in your circle, just how overlooked black women and black teenage girls were to the movement and getting the proper credit. Why do you think that is? And do you think now with this second great civil rights movement happening where black women are leading the charge, the founder of ACT UP, Me Too, you know, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, they're all women. They're all women. Mm -hmm. Is this the time and is this the right, will history be correct now and acknowledge and give the props to those women? So the two part question, why has history in the civil rights movement and black men you know, who have run it really not given women of color their props? And then in this moment, will history look back and will it be about Breonna Taylor as much as George Floyd and all the, you know, that's been going on? What are your thoughts? I think really we, we can't dismiss the power of patriarchy right? And how a patriarchal system, which the U.S. and capitalism and enslavement is based in, right? It's, it's housed in that, right? But when we look at our indigenous populations, where they literally would not even assign gender sometimes until a child was of age or older, right? It was a process. And they had a lot of matrilineal family lines, not to mention how many African countries had matrilineal family lines, but it wasn't always recorded in history, right? So because I'm, I'm like reading Dr. Goldie Muhammad now and reading like Beverly Tatum, and they're bringing this up that women have always kind of been there. And, and some of their stories like surge up and then their stories like disappear. And I find that the, the question is, why do they disappear, right? Because when we look at like Ella Baker giving the $800, there's an article about that when that happened. 
when we look at why, you know, we look at when Rosa Parks first traveled down with Reese Taylor, there were several articles about these things. Like when you look at the archives, but yet Oprah makes this speech and people are like, what, who is this, right? There is something about we lose black women in the storytelling. And I have to believe that that is on purpose mm. because there is a fear. Because if we really, really look back into it, it was more black women that survived lynchings, survived rapings, survived the, the true white terrorism that was happening and is, I hate to say was, is currently happening in our country. Even with Brittany Cooper's eloquent rage, she talks about black women taking $5 and feeding a whole family. And it's not a compliment because that leads to stress and mental health and your body breaking down, which leads to us dying at an early age and not having great access to health care. We still don't talk about the fact that black women still have a high infant mortality rate. We don't talk about that. We try to hide it. We also try to hide when trans women of color are murdered at a high rate by black men. So it's because of like not speaking our truth and also just internalized oppression is a, is, is, is a real thing. Black on black trauma, black on white trauma, white on white trauma, those things are cellular. And do you think, do you think because of trauma because a lot of black folks don't get mental health. It's something from the beginning of time. We don't really understand it. It's like, oh, you get the blues, go to church, pray, whatever. Like there is, there is 400 years that we're, still, of that we're still in our bodies that we're still trying to deal yes. with. How do we get black people, our people? And I want to start there because you can't get to white folks until you start with your own. How do we get us to understand that mental health is a real issue and we carry trauma? And one, I think, is one person at a time, right? Like, you have now more famous people highlighting about trauma and Black men signing up to get therapy, right? We, we are seeing more, it's like little bitty steps. We are seeing more and more of that connection and that respect, like people reading Grandmother's Hands, which is a book by a Black psychiatrist, which is really amazing, that really talks about, it speaks to what James Baldwin said the best, when he was like, are you, just as you're worried, as we worry and weep for the victim of lynching, we also need to be very fearful of those who lynched because we forget that as white men stood around and lynched, their wives and children were out there also. And we are not far removed from which means their, their, their progeny is still walking around today. In the White House. Yeah. Like, like stepping. Not, not, not just in the White House. Let's talk about the, the terrible picture of Pocahontas that's still at the White House. Right? Like, these are things that are still happening, right? And I think like we have to, one, you have to encourage your, you have to start at home. So something that I did really early on is put my daughter into therapy. Really? Because of bullying, because of things that were happening. I had no problem being like, let's find you a therapist. And I was very fortunate to find a beautiful black female therapist. Did you first. have any pushback or trepidations? But that's also because my mom put me in therapy at a very young age. 
to break that cycle of not going to therapy, right? Like you break the cycle by taking your children to therapy. Yeah. So I always tell my parents that I work with, if you feel like something, like I I, I just, I've been sharing this COVID-19 resource Mm -hmm. guide. And Mm -hmm. one of the things in the guide is mental health. And I have a list of like local black therapists that will give, you know, clients, a free 30 minutes or a free hour, what insurance that they take. And I can't tell you how many people have emailed me or called me and been like, even in secret, like I was never thinking about it. But when I saw your post, I felt like, oh, maybe this person will understand me. Because some of it has to do with, it's not a lot of us practicing mental health care. And so sometimes, you know, there is a, a large realm of racism and sexism that exists in the realm of mental health care. And so we also, just like we have to you know, eradicate it from our mental, our health systems, we also have to start like eradicating from our mental health care system so that more of us will go, that more of us won't feel like you don't understand my story, right? Like there, there, that's why there's a call for more black women to be social workers and to be licensed therapists and to do this work, but they will tell you they see more women than they do men. If you were, if you were addressing, because you know one of the things that I also deeply admire about you as a scholar, if you were addressing a room full of black women and black men who are like afraid of mental health, what is the top three things you would tell them today about why it's important, and it's not for rich white women and rich men, like why we, we as a people need therapy? I always start with, how often do you feel the blues and want to go to sleep and hide under your bed? If that's more than five times a week, then you deserve black joy. And you're only going to achieve black joy by healing your mind and healing your spirit in a really real way. How many of you out here from broken relationships and you're like, I just wish that I could meet somebody or I wish I could meet somebody with, with a like mind. That comes from you. That comes from a healing that you have to go through and commit to. How many times have you gone out and you just felt very isolated and alone and you didn't know what that was? You deserve answers to achieve the best of you. Like how many of you want to be better and you don't know how to get there? And I'm not talking about like money or a big house in the hills. I'm talking about literally waking up in the morning, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, it's okay. Right. Right. I'm okay with what I see. And I have now the toolkit to not just protect myself, but to be a, a boom and a, a, and a welcome energy to others. Because when you're sick, it's like any other virus. That's why I hate the fact that we separate mental health from health. It is health. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. like you want, just like you take your insulin because you're a diabetic, mm-hmm. you need to lay on that couch and get some help for your mind. And wouldn't you say, even when you're carrying your child, that because of the history there's a certain amount of that black children, black boys, black little girls, babies come into the world with that our white mm-hmm. counterparts don't. I know there've been studies on this. I, I know Gerald Pittman has done one on embryo, Dr. Pittman. And I'm just wondering like why we don't acknowledge that. Some of it is because we don't know. 
Mm. Right. Some of it is access. Like when you, even when you're talking to mothers about nursing, right. It's so much a push for women to go back to work because if, if they're single parents or if, or if they're in a dual parent home and both incomes, you know, because of the fact that people are living from check to check. Right. There's also not a lot of times that you even talk about what does that mean to nurse your child? Mm. You know, like some people run to formula, not, and I'm not, and this is not a formula versus whichever. I'm saying that there is something to be said if you at least try to nurse. You at least try to have that process. You literally, like one thing I will say when I had my, uh, something I thought was so interesting is she didn't get an ear infection until she was 19 years old. Why? Because I passed on probably every antibody I had when I was nursing. But even with me suffering from postpartum after having her, nursing helped lift my mood. Mm -hmm. It actually helped to heal me. It was something that my therapist recommended for my mental health while I was going through that. Mm -hmm. But if I didn't know that, like if I didn't have any idea what that was, you know, so, and once again, I just, I just say it takes one to know one. Like we, if we want a community to be a certain way, we owe it to ourselves to tell the people in our community what we think it should look like. Let me ask you this. So as you think about that, and we move forward now with Kamala coming into the... Will, yeah. Will she be able to speak to that in a way that white men... Oh my God, yes, she will. I mean, the very fact that she actually passed actual legislation on human trafficking in California, mm. which a lot of people don't talk about, that is huge. Our black girls and brown girls get sucked into that and nobody is ever held accountable or to blame. Yes. Many of them actually have no idea they're being trafficked because we think it's, it, we think trafficking is only swooping somebody from a truck and taking them away. She put in rules about grooming. She put in rules about seeing, you know, taking advantage of young girls, right? Yeah. She did, yeah. she put something in place about girls who run away. This is something that you, that person in the White House means that all these laws that we have failed to pass around sexual assault and our young black girls means that those rules will now be passed. Yes. yes. And those rules will have a national audience and a national space. I want to pivot a little bit here now because one of the things that I we also want to celebrate in this interview, which I adore, is your talent, which is so epic. And I want to start by asking you, I've always wanted to ask this, when you were a little girl growing up, did you know you were going to be an artist? What was your little colored girl dreams? And where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Oh my God. So my grandmother probably knew the best. So mostly what I remember is I loved, okay, so I'm totally telling my age here, but I love TV theme songs, right? So like Lady Godiva was a freedom right? So I would come into the front room with a costume, probably was a sheet wrapped around and do this whole dance for every, every show, okay? And my grandmother and mother would sit there and be like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And the minute it was over, they'd be like, okay, you not made a glass. That show started slide on over. And I would be like, oh, okay. And then, like, my grandmother loved the actual whiz. Like, no shame on the movie. But my grandma was really old school. Like, she took – I remember going to see Stephanie Mills at the Regal Theater oh, when I was wow. little. And I remember being like, oh, 
Like, you know, and I remember she sang, you know, oh my God, to be a lion. Yeah. So I came home ready for all this new stuff I was singing. And I never forget when the movie came out and, you know, the new, the Scarecrow had a new song, right? You can't win. Yeah. My grandmother would stop me in Miller Street. No, 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 no. What's the real song? I was born on the day before yesterday. I mean, she would literally be like, don't sing. If you don't know both songs, don't sing. Don't sing this one. I was like, oh, okay. Right? My grandfather took me to operas when I was younger, was really firm about classical singing, so like the training of voice. So I, you know, I like I believe in that, I did that. But there was a long time when I, you know, got to college. So I had all the support from my family. I had gotten two scholarships in engineering, one scholarship in theater. And I told my family, I said, I'm going to take the scholarship in theater. And at that time, my grandmother was a little sicker, you know, um, Alzheimer's. She was had a little, you know, it was not the best time for her. But she perked up out of bed and said, oh, I'm so glad you figured that shit out. <laughs> I was, I was like, what? Like everybody else in the family is like, oh, an engineer, she's gonna have a real job. And my grandmother was like, that she could play an engineer yeah. on yeah. on stage. You know, but to come from like, especially from a black family that wants security, I've always been told, yes, you could do it. So when I was told no, which would happen a lot early in undergrad, like early in undergrad, they were like, Nope, you're not very talented. Nope, nope, nope. You're this, you're that. And I was like, oh. So I like almost started doing a major, almost switched my major from musical theater to theater design. Went all the way to the other side. And this shows you how black professor, presence of black academics can yes, help you. Yes, yes. So I transferred to U of I. And I was wandering the halls and I was looking for this guy I had worked with, he had cast me in all state plays, is why I wanted to be in theater. And this black man popped his head out, Marvin Sims. And he was like, are you looking for somebody? I said, oh, well, you know, I was, but he's not here. I went into Marvin's office and cried a river, basically sharing my whole story. And he said, you want to audition for Native Son next week? Mm -hmm. I was like, what? And he said, and I will tell you, this department is just as racist as what you just left. Mm. But there's a way for you to get what you need and not have to deal with that. Mm. So I'm going to ask you again, do you want to come and audition next week? And I was like, uh, yeah. But I'm <laughs> not in the department. He was like, oh, hmm, don't worry about that. There's no rules. He said, you can be in a play and not whatever. And it's because of that moment that I am here today singing and dancing and doing other stuff. And it's so funny because that story is in my solo show that I'm working on right now. Because it's such the story about we so often hear no, or people see my career and like, oh, she must have had it super easy. And I'm like, <laughs> no. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I had to, you know, basically make space for myself. And, and made space I did, you know, and <laughs> no problem with that. But it's just the fact that I try to tell people just like somebody helped me, I try to help other people. Yeah, I, I whenever I think about you and all your many accomplishments, I think about Langston Hughes' life ain't been no crystal staircase and how you get yes. to climb and achieve. I gotta ask because you know you have one of the most unique voices I've ever heard. I said this to you offline many times. 
it's just so powerful and vulnerable. And it's, it is opera, and it is musical theater, and it is jazz, and it's gospel. Where does that voice come from? Oh, well, you know what's funny is that voice, and that voice changes, right? Like, I think it comes from knowing who I am. I also, it also comes from a very deep space of telling a story. Mm. I know sometimes as, as singers and actors, we can sometimes separate the two. Mm -hmm. And I believe that music, just like lines in a play, right. are right. very much connected to that. So I tap into that really quickly when, when I'm given either a song or I'm writing some original music, like right now I'm working on some original stuff. And it's funny you say that because people will say, oh, like I didn't expect that. Like it'll come, like for me, it comes from tapping into telling the story and making sure that, you know, I know I'm in a good place when I feel it like all right here, yeah. right? Yeah. And also being flexible, like, you know, like using your body and voice to not just tell one story, but to tell many and to tap, like finding yourself in every role, no matter how small, no matter how large, no matter how two dimensional, I have been very fortunate because of how I do things that I have made those moments into three dimensional things. Yeah, I have to tell you over my career, which I've been very fortunate to work with some of the greats that I consider my time with you to be such a blessing anytime I get to stand with you in a rehearsal room or be blessed with that, that angelic, magical, anointed voice that God has given you. But there's another side of you that people might not know is that you're a great comedian. <laughs> Where did comedy come in? Because you know, most leading divas, they can sing their face off and they're dramatic, but you can do the drama, you can do the comedy, you can sing your face, like, and the politics. <laughs> like, where did the comedy come from? I think it really is so funny because so I've always been the one to crack a joke when stuff gets too much. And it's not because some people think you do that because like you're uncomfortable. I think when I was little, I did it because I always like to see people laugh. Right. I always like to see people feel good about something. I didn't I didn't like to see people feel pain. Right. And I came from a really funny family. I mean, my grandmother was hilarious. She was, I mean, my grandma's a pastor. And so of course people were like, oh, she's a pastor. She's supposed to ask her. Okay. My grandma gambled every Saturday night before church. She had uh, literally a bid whiz party at the house with people from church. So she would basically take all their money before they got to church. And then we get to church on Sunday and she'd be driving super fast. And she was like, she would test trucks next to her. Be like, I wonder how fast he going. He got to go faster than me. And I'll be holding on to my life in that front seat with her Bible and usually a cup of coffee. Right. And I was like, this is dangerous, grandma. You're going to kill us. Tell me shit up. Me I, the funniest thing, funny story I ever had, a, a, a motorcycle cut my grandmother off on the way to church. And my grandmother sat up next to him. They both got to the light. And she was like, roll down the window. So this is before you had automatic windows. So I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what is she gonna say to this man? And she leans over to me and says, you got another one of those at home? And he was like, what are you talking about? You got another one of those at home? 
She said, because you must have another body at home. So when I bounce you out of that body, you can jump into another one. I said, and then scoot it off when the light turned green. I was, and then literally seconds later, you heard this. And Jesus said, he will welcome you into the garden of love and abundance. And I'm up here sweating bullets that sweated out my little press and curl like this. Leaning on I was like, oh, Lord, what happened? So, oh, my God. <laughs> you are so... So between that and the fact that, you know, you meet, like, I, like being a teacher, oh, my God. I've had students say the craziest stuff. And I'm just, you know, I just think it's funny. And they and they don't know to do it because they think that they're being threatening. And I was like, oh, that's right. You're trying to tell me off. I'm sorry. Go on ahead. <laughs> what were you trying to say? Wow. <laughs> experience and so you know and then they'll come back and say miss answer i'm so sorry but i was so tired from this morning i didn't mean what i said i know it's it's okay they were like because you don't never get mad i'm like well I'm, yes yeah no yeah. i don't and but yeah so i think it just you know i love comedy i love finding those moments like improv you know and even like it comes from doing stand-up for a while too like that definitely is where it comes from too but still yeah. My grandmother was the originator of my comedy because well, she was hilarious. I hope that when you do your one-woman show that you send me a, a copy of it because I would love to direct a reading of it here in New York and let the world know you in Brooklyn because everyone's going to fall in love with you from this interview as, as I've known for many years. <laughs> I want to talk to you a little bit about, because you've been very open about you know being a mom and having a child and the balance between career and motherhood. There's a lot of Black women in Brooklyn who are single moms who wrestle with both career and motherhood. Can you talk a little bit about your journey, your struggles, your triumphs, what you know for sure around that? I know for sure that I would not be here without my village. So I have to always give credence to my mother who has been a huge presence. Just, I mean, she was a single parent, but she also has been an amazing grandmother to Maya. When I moved to New York, she like picked Maya up, you know, like allowed me some room to do some things. She also didn't criticize me as, you know, cause that's what happens. And when you do make some choices, you're criticized, right? You're not being a mother. You dumped your kid off with your mom. No, 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 no. Like these weren't easy choices. I'm making these choices so that I can then take her along with me on this journey. I also think too, you have to, People don't tell single mothers enough how amazing they are. And I really want to say this even for single mothers who are encountering relationships or thinking about relationships. You know, the reason why we're so picky is because we've been to the rodeo and back already, right? So it's like, we want to see some things like that. We also, you also need to depend on your sisters, not your biological sisters, because I'm an only child, but I have lots of, amazing women who have watched Maya for me while I was at an audition, who has, you know, made sure that I had a meal when I was depressed and sick or made sure I had like some money to like get to the next job, even though I was like in between spaces or even has provided a roof over our heads. Right. And because of that, I have tried to play that forward as much as possible but I also think sometimes as single mothers, we think that nobody's there to help. And there's 
there might like whatever friends you have like it's like gathering your friends making sure you hold on to your sister circles take time to see some adults even when your children are small and babies because you need to have that balance of who you are as a woman mm-hmm. a black woman and how that balances with who you are as a black mother because your kids see that balance. You know, like my daughter has grown up into this. Sometimes I'm utterly amazed at what happens all the time with her. But I know that that is a direct result of me being in her life, her grandmother, her aunt, some of our cousins, and, and definitely many of my like sister friends being in her life. Mm-hmm. Do you think, if you asked your daughter today, the three things my mom have taught me that's most important in terms of values. What would your daughter say the three things that you've taught her in terms of values as a formidable, intelligent, super smart colored girl, black girl, magic, black girls rock personified the two of you generationally. Yeah. What would she say about her mom? Well, you know, so funny because Maya is such team. She is definitely team tomorrow. Like she's like team mommy. And I think one thing that she has said that you never know is going to happen. So when Maya was applying for college, she wrote this incredible essay about how Black women in her life encouraged her to be the Black woman she wants to be. Mm. And I was like, oh, because as you're parenting, as you're going through it every day, you don't know. You, you have no idea. Sometimes you just miss. The, you miss sometimes those, those moments. So to have her write that, but then to have in conversation for her to tell me, well, I always know we're going to be okay because you always figure it out. Mm. You know, or the fact that she told me, you know, she probably doesn't want to live in the United States. And I wasn't like, oh my God, my child. I said, well, you probably need to figure out how to not live in the United States. Like, how are you going to do that? And she was like, no, that's what I'm thinking of. Like, we have these very, like, she has also taken the family tree like way back to like the first person our family, Sarah, and has been writing these short stories, these memoirs, been very much asking about how does history, she's very fixated on like women and how women and their, their juxtaposition with males in our family. Like she t- asked about my grandfather, who she unfortunately did not meet before he passed away. But she asked about him and I tell her, you know, he was also a comedian. He was hilarious. And he would, you know, I had a different relationship with him than maybe my mother and and, and aunt did, right? And so I find that generationally, and one thing that Maya also always acknowledges is the fact about being honest. Like if she asks me something, I don't care how embarrassing it may look, I'd be like, okay, well, there's the answer and take it or leave it, right? And some people have looked at me like, oh, I can't believe he said that to her. Like, isn't she too young? No, I want her to know that no matter how, you know, questionable it may be, that she can always come to me and ask me and, you know, expect me to be in her corner. But without being a helicopter parent, you know, I'm very much about empowering her decisions and encouraging her to think for herself. So, yeah. That's awesome. Do you think that your daughter would have been different in life if she had grew up 
with one moment changing different? Or do you think everything happens that shaped her to the phenomenal young woman that she is in the world today? I think so that goes into, so when you look backwards, you see how everything happened for a reason, right? When you're in it, you're like, what? <laughs> why, like, why are these mountains falling on top of me? You know what I'm saying? And I tell people all the time that my daughter wants to be an artist. I, I should not want. My daughter believes she can be a viable professional artist because she saw me be one. Yes. Yes. And so because of that, she doesn't have a plan B. I've had lots, you know, as adults, we go through plan Bs, you know, I'm going to do this, I need some insurance. Blah, blah, blah. It's not, that never comes out of her mouth. She's like, this is what I want to do. Right. And I want to make sure that I'm prepared to do it, vice versa. Even in a space of like being this black female film writer in the middle of like, when black female sci-fi writers and fantasy writers are not always, and to be an artist, like somebody who actually has this, these beautiful images that she creates, that's not a guarantee. That's definitely not, to me, not an easy pathway. But she sees it as like the pathway. And my mom is totally supportive of it. My aunt is very, like, she has the entire family behind her. And I think that is what gives her the power to like really, you know, be her own person. Right, right. And and would you say that your mother gave you that? Oh, yes. Like, I think about that all the time. Like, people always like, how is it you never went back to Chicago or you never went back home? Like, I haven't been home since I left for college, truth be told. Like, I never went home. I, I bought my first house when I was 22. Like, I, I just never went home. <laughs> and... It wasn't because we have some crazy relationship. My mother and I are actually really, really close. Like, LaVita is my ace boom coop. Like, we talk all the time, all stuff. But I think, like, my mom always gave me opportunities to be me. Dance classes, piano. What do you want to do? It was never a no, even if she could barely afford it. Like, I do remember aunts and uncles paying my tuition for schools and certain things because it was like a village, right? Right. And I think sometimes we forget that Black villages are the most powerful villages, right? Like, these things still exist. Like, I, because I, I never want to be that person who says, I did everything by myself and my mom gave me very little help. That no. When I when I was flying back and forth between Chicago and New York, had an agent in New York already getting audition. The third round trip flight, and I'm like coming home looking crazy. Maya's in the back in her car seat. My mother turned to me and said, "You need to move." Hmm. She didn't say go get a real job because you have a kid, you got responsibility. She's like, "You need to move." Like she was like, "You'll never be happy." until you go. She was like, Maya can stay here for a week, a month, what, two months. She's like, you need to go. Right. And literally the next summer, I packed up my car and me and my mother and Maya drove to New York and it's been history ever since. But yes. How important, you know, there's a lot of black girls who will look to you and have looked to you as an inspiration, who are artists, who are in really tough circumstances. How important was your faith and how important was your training, like actual training to become an artist? 
oh my gosh, well, my faith is the reason I'm not cuckoo for cocoa puffs, right? Like my, <laughs> my faith, having that foundation in God and, and, and spirituality. So my grandmother was a spiritualist minister. She was like one of the first black women to be ordained in the church of spiritual metaphysical teachings in Chicago from Reverend Cobb. Wow. And one of the things that that doctrine practice is, is a, it combines all of Christianity, but with a strong sense of meditation and auras. Like I probably went to more seances than I probably went to church with my grandmother. Wow. And but I think like that belief in the beyond, that belief that you are a part of something bigger than you is what always grounded me. Even at school when people were terrible and mean and bullying and nasty, I knew I could go to my dorm room or go to my space and light a candle mm. and pray and recenter myself and refocus. And usually that time the answers came. And most of the answers were if they're not going to let you be in dance ensemble, then go choreograph a piece and put it in the concert. Oh, okay. So boom, there it is. That's what I would do. And then everything, then it became like I would face every no with making a yes. Mm. And training is a part of that. If I hadn't been taking dance classes since I was four years old, continued through the time I was 17 years old, um, my high school theater program was actually pretty amazing, like, it's like a pretty hardcore program. Like the fact that I went through that program in high school, the fact that my family, my grandmother believed in everybody learning how to play an instrument, that was like a rule in the house. So learning how to play the piano, learning how to read music, learning how to be creative. I, w I felt like I was all, I always brought preparation to opportunity. Yes. Which means my work ethic um, that's one thing that I'm really adamant about as I twitch my eye is, is work ethic. Like, what are you bringing to the table? Are you accountable? Mm -hmm. Do I have to chase you around when I asked you to write these three songs? I'm not. I'm going to hire somebody else. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And, and knowing you in the rehearsal room, you, you're the first one in, the last one out. I mean, you really take your craft and your professionalism so serious. Would you say, because this is a lot of talk now with black women in the entertainment industry, that where are we in your opinion, and in the theater, and you've worked in film and television, with colorism between, Ooh. you know, like where are we with that in the black women, everyone's saying this is the year of black women with Kerry Washington and, you know, all these nominations mm -hmm. and Viola and Regina King. But for you and your experience, where are we with colorism for black women in the industry? So I think to think about that, I think you only need to look to Viola, right? Mm -hmm. This is an extremely beautiful, stunningly beautiful, dark-skinned Black woman who is amazing. Like, to say she's talented is just not enough. Like, it's like a master class watching her in different scenes, right? Yeah. And the fact that she achieved two Tony Awards and still had to wait several years before and getting a show that will put her at a certain point, right? She spent a lot of time. I like, I remember her literally being like crackhead number one in the Steven Seagal movie in 1991, right? Like, I remember that. And I and the, and mo I, and the mom and Antoine Fisher, I mean, that that was yes, yes, 
Right, with no lines. She had no lines. And she said, and everything was right here, right? And yet she still had to wait. Wait. So I think, are we getting better? I think we're getting better because we are now recognizing that colorism is real. I think that is where we're getting better at. You know, that no longer people ask questions. Like, do you think it's colorism? No, it, it is. It can be, right? Like, I mean, you can just, you can even just look at Stacey Abrams, you know? Like, I, like she almost won Georgia because she's amazing, but I'm sure parts of the reason why she didn't win is because she's a fluffy girl. And her hair texture, too. <laughs> yeah, but is she the brightest person on the block? Yes. So I think like, I think now colorism, like I think we, like me and you and people in our generation have always known what it is and what's existed. But I think like now people in the industry yeah. are speaking yeah. about it and people in the industry are actually listening and people in the industry. Cause one thing I will say is that I have been really fortunate. Like most of the parts that I have gotten in TV so far have not been race specific. You know, they weren't written for a black female. Yeah. They were written yeah. like up like somebody. And then I was like, oh, good. I fit the bill. And thank you very much for this opportunity. But one thing I will say about that is even being in the room, like because you're in the room, who they even bring in for these parts now. Like the fact that I wear my hair natural, I wear my hair in locks. And some people are like, well, this is all the rave. But I was wearing my hair like this back in 2003 when it wasn't all the rave and still working when people were literally advising me you need to like cut your hair or they're not going to see you i said but they just saw me yesterday and they just offered me a gig yeah i think as the nation's changing you know i've always said the theater it feels like it's a 1940 still commercial theater it is and i have more hope with television and and film that there really is a big movement but i do believe that this this pandemic it's going to really kick theater in its hind parts. Yeah. Because it can't go back to what it was. Yeah, I think that people like you, I hope in my own small way that directors and writers who have vision that black beauty and, and wisdom and power come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. Yeah. And that when we say Black Lives Matter, that's part of, of what matters in our yeah. industry. I want to ask you, if you could, before we go, bless us with... <laughs> A little bit of whatever's on, you know, you always sing from the heart. If you could bless us with a, a little bit of something in these final minutes, what's on your spirit? We'd love to hear it. And I'd love all the casting directors and artistic directors in New York on Broadway that are listening, that live in Brooklyn, to know this Queens, get a sliver of her gift as she anoints us. Okay, well, actually, you know what? This I'm inspired by this song. I just, I did this at a protest, but I was inspired to protest because I did it with you two weeks before. So here it is. You might have a little reminder. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. And like a tree that's standing by the waterside, we shall not be moved. We're fighting for justice. We shall not be moved. We're fighting for justice. We shall not be moved. And like the train that's standing by the water, we 
Bravo! Bravo! Bravissimo! Magnifique! Magnifique! So I just want to say that this hour has flown by and how blessed we are in Brooklyn to have spent it with you. And I want to remind all the folks, the funders and listeners and casting directors and agents and folks who have just fallen in love with you, how they can reach you. How do they reach you? Okay, okay. So I'll give you two places. One is my website at www.tamara-anderson.com. You can reach me through my contact page, or you can also reach me on Instagram. I get lots of tags on there, love. I actually have an Instagram channel for quarantunes where I'm singing every day, basically. And I have an Instagram channel with uh, self-tapes. So like I show you bloopers for my self-tapes. It's really fun. So you can like look at those. But that is at, at Tamara.Della. Dot Anderson for Instagram. And then you can also always reach me by email at Anderson at gmail.com. And you can also check out my IMDB page, which is the same thing with Tamara Della Anderson. It has all my credits, my most recent one with the blacklist and things like that. So, yes. And that's also a great way to reach me about my program that's coming up too. Yes. And, and I want to say that we'll put all that on the site. So I know that it's a lot of information. But I really do want to say to all those funders who really are trying to support Black female entrepreneurs that my sister is a woman of vision, of class, of talent, and of heart. And no better person should receive your funding than her. And I also just want to say to all my fellow artists in New York and Broadway and off-Broadway community, my God, can we give this woman a Tony already? She is fantastic. And she is such a bright light in the world. And I just want to thank you, sister from the bottom of my heart for being such an inspiration, such a, a motivational person to me and such a teacher to me. You know, people often say, you know, Regenda, you're a leader, you're a teacher, but I am taught and you are one of the teachers to me. So thank you for being part of my life. Thank you for enriching my life and enriching the world through your craft, your talent, and most importantly, your formidable spirit. Oh, thank you so much, Regendra. I love you, love you, love you to the moon and back. Just such great energy. I love the fact of your vision and that it has always actually been very feminine centric, yes. which is yes. always missing, but also more so because you're just my brother from another mother. So thank you so much. Amen. I'll always be your Baldwin if you'll be my Hansberry. <laughs> All right. I love you. Everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our journey today. I know the world is a very crazy place, but these conversations with this type of humanity that my sister brought today remind us that we're not alone. So the struggle continues. Keep your eye on the prize and be kind to each other. Peace! The mission of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, is to ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of rights of all persons and to eliminate race-based discrimination. The Equity in the Arts and Culture Committee seeks advocacy for artists in the borough of Brooklyn, builds bridges between funders, artists, and arts organizations within the borough of Brooklyn, promotes and presents events that celebrate diversity, inclusion, and the core mission values of the NAACP, celebrates artist-driven, radically inclusive, and fundamentally democratic art of, by, and for all people, especially those in the borough of Brooklyn, creates educational opportunities that support 
Arts Learning affirms and celebrates diverse cultural heritage and extends its work to promote equal access to the arts in every community. If you would like to know more about the Brooklyn NAACP and how you can become a member of the community, visit our website at brooklynnaacp.org. That's brooklynnaacp.org.